Hello again, this is Buck Benning speaking. Welcome to another episode of Zero Hour. This week's episode is entitled Face of the Foe. It stars Jessica Walter, Joseph Campanella, and Richard Dawson. Now, Jessica Walter uh, is a famous actress who's been in a lot of different things. Play Misty for Me is probably one of her biggest movies that she's in, and Grand Prix as well. She also played Lucille Bluth in the sitcom Arrested Development, and she does the voice of Mallory Archer in the FX animated series Archer. What I like about these, bringing you these zero hours, is that some of these actors, or at least more of these actors, are still alive than in a lot of our, our earlier um, old-time radio shows. Um, the other person here, of course, Joseph Capanella, is an actor who's been in over 200 roles in television and film. Uh, just a very versatile actor, uh, character actor. He's been in, uh, what, Decoy, The 11th Hour, Fugitive, Mission Impossible, Gunsmoke, Big Valley, The Untouchables, Police Story, The Road West, The Invaders, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Golden Girls, Mama's Family. <laughs> he's been in... He was in the Colbys, the nighttime soap opera that followed Dynasty. He was in uh, Days of Our Lives. He's been in Bold and the Beautiful. Um, he was in CSI. Uh, just, just a lot of different things that he's been in. When you hear his voice, you'll go, oh, that guy. You'll, you'll recognize him. And then, of course, Richard Dawson, famous for basically two big things, but he was in lots of stuff. But uh, his two biggest things, of course, were Hogan's Heroes, uh, where he did just a wonderful job playing the English officer in Hogan's Heroes. And also, uh, he, of course, is famous for being on Family Feud, being the host of Family Feud for many, many years, and for uh, always kissing his guests and things. And my mom always thought it was inappropriate that he would kiss the guests and, <laughs> and so forth. But anyway, so we get a chance to spend some time with Richard Dawson as well, which is pretty cool. Now, um... Leaving that behind for a minute, I want to talk in general, general terms about uh, Zero Hour. Uh, some of you may have noticed that Zero Hour, though these recordings are recorded very well, they'll like have somebody in the background that you can barely hear, and then somebody's talking like they're right up front, and so it, it makes it a little more difficult to listen to than some of the other old-time radio shows we bring you. And the reason for this isn't because they're poorly recorded, Though there might be some mic issues and things, but I doubt there was nearly as many as it sounds like. But the biggest thing is that they were recorded for stereo. And so what you will get, uh, and of course Elliot Lewis is the, the, the next best thing to Orson Welles when it comes to radio and presenting radio shows. And I think he really wanted to make this a dynamic and different sounding show. So he might have an actor on the right speaker that will come out and be like they're supposed to be right up talking to you really close and then you might have an actor on the left speaker that's supposed to be in a different room in the house maybe or downstairs and so they're talking and so they sound like they're a long ways away which works if you have left and right speakers and you or you have headphones on but uh, if you had a mono device that was not playing stereo it would be very hard. The, the voice that's the smaller voice that's supposed to sound further away would get smothered by the voice that's up close. 
And that's what we get in these series uh, that we hear because most of them, <coughs> excuse me, though they were originally supposed to be stereo, over the years and the generations and things uh, of uh, the versions that I have, they were converted, someone had converted them into mono. So by taking the, the left and the right speaker and putting them together to create mono, you get um, sometimes one vocal overpowering another, and it all sounds like it's coming from the same place, so it makes it for garbled and harder to hear. Um, now, what the good thing is that a few of the episodes we have coming up are going to actually be presented in stereo, and I'll tell you when that happens. Um, and really, even if I didn't tell you, if you're listening to it on stereo speakers or headphones, you would notice the difference, believe me. The clarity is like goes up tremendously, and the enjoyment goes up a lot because you can have two characters, one talking to one speaker, one in the other, and it gives you a feeling like you're in the room and they're uh, right there with you carrying a conversation, So, which is pretty cool. And to get a demonstration of that, this week... Um, I'm going to do something really special with the Sears Radio Theater this week. It's like every week I present it differently, but <laughs> here's what we're doing this week. Uh, we'll present it again Monday through Friday, and of course uh, it's hosted by a different host every uh, day, and it has different genre subject matter every day. But what I've found just this week are some stereo versions of the Mutual Radio Theater which was the follow-up Sears had a season, and then they decided to take the Sears Radio Theater and take it to Mutual, and it became the Mutual Radio Theater, but it was the exact same format. It still had Elliot Lewis producing it, um, so it was great. The only difference was that they sent out the uh, shows on disc, and so... Since they were on disc, they're easy for us to, once people found them and saved them, preserved them, they could transfer them well, and so you get these great stereo digital copies that are available. And I just found a beautiful set. And so what I'm going to do is, for each episode this week, we'll play you the Sears one that we normally play. That is, uh, what, the second or third week? I think third week now we're in of the Sears Radio Theater. But then attached to that, I will also have an episode of the uh, stereo version that I'm talking about. Uh, will I have it attached or will I have it separate? Anyway, I'll figure some way out to present also the stereo version of um, the mutual shows so that you can hear the difference in sound quality and you'll be like, wow, that's night and day. I mean, there are really great sounding shows. So if you're ever going to listen to my show on headphones on a stereo system, make sure you do it this week uh, so that you can hear the stereo shows that are going to be happening on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, Friday, this week. Anyway, um, that's I guess that's most of the kind I want to cover about Zero Hour. Um, just a lot of things happened this week, and I, <laughs> I want to go over them with you, I guess. I'll go over them. I might say them in a few podcasts, but anyway... Uh, so I, I, like I say, I found those mutuals, which is wonderful. But then I was thinking, and, I, and I've had this in my mind for a long time, I get some wonderful shows like, like Finding These Mutuals or Finding uh, Other Shows that uh, one show that I recently found is uh, The Railroad Hour, which is a wonderful show, 
but I just don't know if I'm ever going to have time to really bring it to you in the way of podcasts. So I would like to be able to get some of these great shows that I find in wonderful condition out to you somehow. And so I think I figured out a way to do that. So what I'm going to do is, uh, and since people have asked about uh, a lot of my shows, uh, I've decided to create a way for that to happen, which is pretty cool. So, I haven't asked for a long time for anybody to, to donate any money, because I just keep on forgetting to do it. So I'm going to ask now, and I'm going to explain why I'm doing this. It'll all dovetail together here in a moment. Anyway, uh, so what I, what I say is, of course, you know, my podcasts, I run two a day, basically all year long, um, sometimes up to three a day, other times down to one a day, but anyway, I average it out to about two a day. So that's about 700 or so podcasts a year. Uh, out of the 700 I bring you, if you were to say, hey, those are worth a penny apiece to me, that'd be $7 a year that you would uh, be getting enjoyment out of them. And what I would love for you to uh, pledge $7 to us, to the podcast each year, and be giving that to us so that we can keep bringing you to these shows, because it, the bandwidth does cost more and more money for us to do as we get more and more listeners, and we have a lot more listeners now than we even had at the beginning of the year. We had about 1,000 listeners per day, and now we have about 2,000 listeners per day, which is really great, but it does cost <laughs> to do that. Um, anyway, uh, so so you might say, hey, maybe the show's to you. You go, hey, no, they're, to me they're really worth about 10 cents a piece. Well, at 10 cents a piece, that would be about $70. And that's great. If you think they're worth $70 and you want to donate $70 to the podcast, podcast, that would be wonderful. But I want to give some people some enticement that are willing to donate those kinds of numbers to us. So what I've said in the past is that if you donate at the $25 level, then I will give you, I will send you back in your email uh, access to all of my Jack Benny podcasts, uh, about 700 of them right now that I've done in the past, that you can't get to in the podcast. You can get to some of them, but the majority of them you can't get to, but you can, because I'll send you this link, and you can listen to and download to your heart's content all of uh, the episodes of my podcast I've done for Jack Benny, the $25 level. At the $39 level, if you, if you donate at that level, then I'll give you access to all the podcasts I've done, the Jack Bennys, the Bing Crosbys, the Gunsmokes, all of my guest podcasters, what they've done so that you can get a chance to listen to all of those shows from the past um, that we brought you before. But then I've also had people that say they'd like to access just the plain old shows without my high-quality shows that I find, because they notice I find pretty good shows, high-quality sound ones, and they'd like to have access to them. So now I'm introducing a new level, which is the $50 level. And at the $50 level you will give have access to, of course, all the Jack Benny podcasts, all my other podcasts, just like uh, the $39 level. But at the $50 level and beyond, you will also have access to uh, my entire uh, Jack Benny um, set of episodes that I have, my high-quality set, which I think is about the highest-quality set anywhere. And... Uh, you can download those shows without my podcast introductions, just the actual episodes. You also have access to the Phil Harris and Alice Faye collection that I have, the whole collection, everything that I, I can find, I, I put in there. 
Uh, you'll also have access to uh, the, the mutuals that I just found this week in uh, stereo. You'll have access to all of those. You can listen to those uh, the entire run of uh, mutual radio theater. Um, and I'll just keep on throwing more and more things in there. Uh, the entire zero hour in its full resolution and everything, and uh, stereo where I have stereo, not all the episodes I have in stereo, but the ones that I do, you'll also have there. So there's just as much stuff as I can think of to put there. You will get um, access to that. So uh, feel free to donate to the podcast to keep it running, and we'll try and throw some links your way that maybe you would like and maybe uh, will be helpful to you in helping you uh, either develop a collection or uh, just to listen to for enjoyment. Um, anyway, that's all I want to say. Oh, and to donate, uh, let's uh, go for that. If you go into, if you have a PayPal account, you go into your PayPal account and you click on your uh, send money tab that's in there, and it'll say to what email address. If you, t- if you send it to buckbennyotr, all one word, buckbennyotr, at gmail.com. That will get it to me, and they won't charge me anything on my end for you doing it that way, which is the best way uh, for you to send money to me. If you go to, uh, like, this podcast here, if you just type, type in buckbenny.com, it'll take you to my uh, Podomatic page, and on there will be links that you can click down on a pull-down menu, you can pull down and select the level you want, and go ahead and choose that level, and then it'll send the payment through PayPal over to me as well. Uh, If you do it that way, then PayPal charges a percentage of what I get, which is okay too. And then uh, the third way, of course, is if you want to send check or money order or something like that, you can just email me at buckbennyotr at gmail.com and ask me for my address, and I'll send that to you, and then you can send a check or money order, and then uh, we can do it that way. So uh, thank you for all the support you've all given me over the years. And our podcast, we want to keep bringing it to you. I think this fall is going to be really exciting. It's got uh, a lot of shows. I'm really going to be focused on comedy this fall and um, bringing you more comedies and with our guest hosts, they're all excited about uh, things that we can do this fall as well. So, and I think they're doing a great job this summer as well. Anyway, enjoy Zero Hour, and we will see you next time. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents. Good evening. You're listening to the Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Patricia Powers' eerie saga of a neighborhood besieged. Face of the foe. Starring Jessica Walter, 
Joseph Campanella. And Judy Karn. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. This week, a winter's tale, set in a pleasant residential neighborhood in the Canadian city of Montreal, where two attractive young women share a cozy, stylish apartment, their workaday problems and pleasures, and their dreams and uncertainties of the future. For Nicole Nugent, there's the question of whether or not she should marry the budding young novelist, Christopher Galloway. For Laura Prescott, still smarting from a broken love affair... There is her current plan to start a beer garden restaurant to put her passion for German cooking profitably to work. But for Nicole Nugent and Laura Prescott, there will soon be a far more immediate and vital concern. There's a psychopath loose in the neighborhood. He's murdering people. And his victims all are women. Our story, Face of the Foe, begins after this word. Asphalt and concrete, neon and steel Nowhere, nowhere, anything real Bolted doors on the houses Shutter doors on the hearts Broken dreams in the concrete Murder dreams in the steel Picture this. A cold, blustery winter's evening in the city of Montreal. In front of a cozy fire in the living room of their shared apartment, Nicole Nugent and Laura Prescott sit over their after-dinner coffee. Till Eulenspiegel. How does that sound to you as a name for my restaurant? Till Eulenspiegel? What is it? It's not a what is it, it's a who is it. A collection of satirical tales were written about him back in the 1500s. He was kind of a German hippie of his time. Liked to play tricks on the establishment, including innkeepers. Now that you've told me, it's a great name. But will the customers know who he is? His legend will be proclaimed on a plaque outside the door and on the back of our menu. When our customers raise their beer steins, it'll be to toast the ghost of Till Eulenspiegel. I'll drink to that. I smiled at Laura over our raised coffee cups. I wished her every success with her idea for a restaurant and didn't see how she could fail. She had imagination and brains, was a wizard in a kitchen, and now her mother had come through with the financial backing of $50,000. Laura had immediately placed an ad in the paper for a restaurant location. I just hope this place I have an appointment to see tomorrow turns out to be as ideal as it sounds. It's a delicatessen restaurant with modern equipment, even an area at the side for outdoor tables and chairs, and it's right across from the university. A beer garden should have great appeal to college students. It sounds perfect. How come the owner is giving it up? He's retiring. What time is your appointment with him? Not until late tomorrow afternoon, so I have to try to get my mind off it. I'm going to a movie with Amy tonight. Want to join us? No, thank you. This is the kind of evening to curl up in front of the fire with a good book. Especially if the man you're in love with is too busy writing one to curl up with you. 
I take it Chris is on a deadline. Again. I'm not sure I want to marry a man who's already married to a typewriter. I wouldn't hesitate too long if a man like Christopher Galloway loved me. Careful on your way out. You may run into the man in apartment four. Oh, I hope not. All we knew of the man in apartment four was the name on his mailbox, T. Oliphant. He'd moved in a month ago. A tall, stooped, cadaverous-looking character with a bald, high-domed head and a gray prison pallor look to his skin. Every time Laura and I encountered him in the lobby, he looked at us through his thick-lensed glasses in a way that gave us both the creeps. A cold, sneering look, as though we were reacting to something that thoroughly disgusted him. He's a woman-hater. I'm sure of that. Sybil Hepworth thinks he's the mad bomber. It's ridiculous to even ask where Sybil Hepworth gets any of her ideas. But where did she get that one from? Well, you know how he's always carrying a brown carton under his arm when he goes out? And she says she hears him hammering on something in his apartment all the time. So she figures he's in there making bombs. You know Sybil. Sybil Hepworth was our apartment house busybody. Unfortunately, her apartment was right across the hall from ours. And now as Laura left for her movie date, Sybil came flying out of her door to corner me with an idle comment about the weather, which was always her devious way of trying to strike up a gossip-laden conversation. Real wintry night out, isn't it? Yes, it is. Not fit for man or beast. But I noticed it didn't daunt Miss Prescott none. She must have a very important engagement to go out on a night like this. Very. She's a beautiful girl. Used to see her going out all the time with a gentleman friend. But he doesn't seem to come around anymore. I suppose things between them must have gone tft, as they say. Gone what? Tft. You know, like they write in the gossip columns. Oh, do you read the gossip columns, Miss Hepworth? I shouldn't think you'd have the time. Good night. I'd long ago reached the conclusion that Sybil Hepworth moved her bed out into the lobby at bedtime. But she was right about one thing. It was a real wintry night outside. I stirred up the flames in the fireplace, kicked off my shoes, and settled down on the sofa with my book. It was a murder mystery. A good one. I was so absorbed in the story I was reading that the sudden frantic pounding on the door gave me a start that nearly sent me out of my skin. Who could it be and what was wrong? No one had rung the buzzer. Whoever it was, how had they gotten in? I was almost afraid to open the door, but the urgent hammering went on like a cry for help. I turned the catch and cautiously opened the door. The colorless, terrified face of a woman peered in at me. Please, please let me in. Someone's after me. Oh, let, let me in, please. Yes, of course. Uh, he, he was right behind me, all the way down Winnicott Road. You're safe now. I've locked the door. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Come in and sit down. I'll get you some brandy, and then you can tell me what happened. With shaking hands, she put the armful of sheet music and books she was carrying on the coffee table and sat down heavily on the sofa. A big, ungainly woman with a round, childlike face framed by black sausage curls. In her late thirties, I figured, and well-to-do, judging by the pastel mink, velvet pantsuit, and pearl necklace she was wearing. 
I went into the kitchen and poured a generous measure of brandy into a glass, noting by my watch that it was 10.30. And at that moment, I suddenly remembered something that sent a shiver of fear down my spine. Only four nights ago, a woman had been found strangled inside a garage on Winnicott Road. Here, drink this down. Then we'll talk. <coughs> thank, thank you. I, I, I feel better. Do you want to tell me what happened? Oh, yes. Yes, it, it was so frightening, that, that man following me. It, it's all right. You're inside now and the door's locked. Thank you, Miss... Nugent, Nicole Nugent. I, I'm Kathleen Windsor. I, I live on Winnicott Road, close to Queen Mary. Um, I was on my way home. And someone was following you? Yes, yes. He followed me along Côte Saint-Luc from Girouard and then down Winnicott. I, I crossed the street and he crossed right behind me, getting closer and closer. How frightening. I, I knew I couldn't reach my house, so I turned and ran down Phoebe Lane. Did he come after you? Yes. He, he stopped for just a minute, and then I heard him coming. That's when I ran in and started pounding on your door. Oh, thank heaven you were here to let me in. But how did you get into the lobby without ringing the buzzer? Well, I didn't have to ring. The door wasn't locked. Oh, that's what I was afraid of. We've been having trouble with the lock on that door. I guess the janitor hasn't fixed it yet. Well, you'd better see that he does. But I am grateful that it was still broken tonight. Perhaps I, I should call the police. Could, could you give them any description of the man? No. I just ran when I heard him getting closer. I, I only glanced at him once when I crossed the street on, on Winnicott before he came across after me. What did he look like? Kind of short, I think, with a dark coat. I couldn't really see. It was dark and he was in the shadows. I was really too frightened to notice. Oh, I understand. You see... Only last Monday night, a girl from my church choir was murdered on Winnicott Road. Yes, I, I read about it. It must be awful when it's someone you knew. Elsie Grimberger. She sang the solo sometimes. Had a beautiful soprano voice. Shall I get you some more brandy? No. No. I have to go home. Mother would be so worried if she knew. She, she's always warning me to come straight home after choir practice. You live with your mother? Yes, but she's in the hospital now, has has been for weeks, poor thing, with a broken hip. If we were to call the police, something might appear in the paper to worry her. I don't think you have enough of a description to be of any help to them. And I'm sure the man isn't still hanging about. Oh, dear, I hope not. To tell you the truth, I'm, I'm frightened about walking home from here. Oh, but I won't let you walk home alone. I'll go with you. Oh, that, that's very kind, but do you really think you should? I mean, that means from my house back here, you'd be walking alone. Now that she mentioned it, the idea didn't exactly appeal to me. We were in definite need of an escort. And almost at once I thought of Mr. Matry, the janitor. If he were home, he wouldn't mind, I was sure. I remembered his telling me how he liked to take walks at night. There he is now. In just a few minutes, he'll be safely home. Oh. Hello, Mr. Matry. This is so good of you. No trouble at all, Miss Nugent. This is Miss Windsor. She lives just down the street on Winnicott Road. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for coming to our rescue, Mr. Matry. <laughs> a sudden suspicion dawned on me. Was Kathleen Windsor just imagining things? 
Had a man actually been following her, or was it only wishful thinking? She was close to 40, I was sure of it. But when it came to men and mother, it appeared she was just a naughty little girl. Mr. Matry's broad, swarthy face remained expressionless at all of the fawning and giggling Kathleen Windsor couldn't seem to refrain from. <laughs> Your things are on the coffee table, Miss Windsor. Don't forget them. Oh, yeah. yes, my music. I'm going to be singing a solo this Sunday. Uh, are you a church-going man, Mr. Matry? Yes, I go to church every week. <laughs> As the three of us came out of the apartment, I saw the door across the hall furtively closed. I knew that Sybil Hepworth had had her eyes and ears open. A full moon rode high behind a veil of clouds. We walked quickly, heads down against the wind, and arrived at Seabury House in a few minutes' time. A doorman in maroon and gold livery tipped his hat to Kathleen Windsor, swung the outer door open, and admitted us into the inner sanctum. We rode a whispery, silent elevator to the fourth floor, walked down a thickly carpeted, softly lit hall to a plum-colored door numbered 415. We waited while Kathleen Windsor searched her purse for her keys, found them, and opened the door. (laughs) Won't you please come in for a moment? (laughs) Both of you. Just to see that everything's all right. Yes, of course, just for a moment. He might have gotten into my apartment somehow. No, that does not seem very likely to me. It would be very difficult to get past that doorman and through a locked door. But we'll make certain you're safe before we leave. Won't we, Mr. Matry? Of course. Mr. Matry patiently looked into every corner and cupboard and checked the window leading to the fire escape. There is no one here. You do not have to worry. Um, but uh, the the other rooms, Mr. Matry, would you mind? He went into the kitchen, the bathroom, and Kathleen's mother's room, looking behind curtains and doors and the clothes hanging in closets. Finally, we walked together into the room that I knew at once belonged to Kathleen Windsor. A little girl's room, all pink and white with ruffled curtains and a menagerie of stuffed animals on a canopied four-poster bed. From a rocking chair in the corner, a giant plush teddy bear stared at me with glass-button eyes. It's all right, Miss Windsor. I've looked everywhere. There is no one. <laughs> I, I know you're going to think this is silly of me, Mr. Matry, but there is one other place he could be hiding. <laughs> Would you just take one little peek (laughs) under my bed? In retrospect, my adventurous evening with Kathleen Windsor seemed rather ludicrous. I was looking ahead to the following evening when that struggling young novelist, Christopher Galloway, would tear himself away from his current literary effort long enough to take me out to dinner. But it was just my luck to wake up the next morning with a cold. Cheer up. Two weeks from now, you'll be sunning yourself on the sands of Jamaica, where probably no one's ever even heard of a cold. (coughs) Oh, right now, my only concern is about my date with Chris tonight. Any time he's willing to take off when he's on a deadline is pure gold. Here. A glass of freshly squeezed vitamin C. 
Maybe if you take it easy all day, you'll feel better tonight. Oh, maybe. Too bad you had to go out at all last night. My big errand of mercy. It was a fool's errand, I'm sure. That poor silly woman. You should have seen her bedroom, Laura. It looked like something out of an old Shirley Temple movie. Well, from what you told me, I guess her mother just never let her grow up. Her mother should have seen her last night, giggling and fawning over poor little Mr. Matry. How was Mr. Matry taking it? He didn't say anything after we left. You know how quiet and polite he always is. I caught him staring at her a couple of times, though. And we'd better remind him to fix that lock on the lobby door. Oh, we met T. Oliphant in the lobby on our way out last night. And you should have seen the way he stared at Kathleen Windsor. I've seen the way he stares at me, and that's enough. It was strange. He looked her up and down with that awful sneer of his. Maybe he doesn't approve of women in mink coats. A mink and an apartment at Seabury House. Whatever it is that Kathleen Windsor lacks, it is money anyway. Well, minks aren't in my line. All I want is a nice-going little restaurant. I hope this place I'm seeing today will be it. Keep your fingers crossed. I will. <coughs> That's about as much activity as I feel up to. It was a long, cold day. Even bundled up under blankets on the sofa in front of a roaring fire, I couldn't stop shivering. I kept trying to get Chris on the phone, but the line was always busy. I knew he had the receiver off the hook. Another annoying habit of his when he was in the throes of creation. been trying to ring you all day. Oh, you know I sometimes take the phone off the hook when I'm writing. Yes, I know. It's very frustrating. What's the matter, Buffett? You sound a little out of sorts. Oh, I'm sorry, Chris. I have a cold, that's all. Oh, poor Miss Muffet. I thought you sounded a little fuzzy. Hey, what does this do to our dinner date? It cancels it, I'm afraid. <coughs> I just don't think I should go out tonight. Oh, well then how about me bringing dinner in? Your favorite Chinese food. Or would you rather not have any company? Not just any company, but you and Chinese food sound perfect. I'm rallying already. Good girl. I'll be there soon, and I won't stay too late. Oh, it's just as well. <coughs> Probably full of germs. Uh, seeing as how they're your germs, I'll risk it. I'll see you, Muffet. Muffet. Chris always called me that. With affection, but also with a twinkle of amusement in his eye that he wouldn't explain. I couldn't honestly say why I didn't jump at the chance to marry Chris. I loved him and he loved me. We both knew it without having to say it all the time. But I also knew his commitment to his work might sometimes come between us. Was that the real reason I put off saying yes? Right now, with the man of my life to you any minute, I thought I'd better try to make myself as appealing as anybody with a cold of the nose could be. About all I could manage was a touch of eye makeup and a few strokes of the hairbrush. At least it took some of the lackluster from my eyes and returned a little of the sheen to my hair. Hello, darling. Mm. How's my muffin feel, huh? I'll live. Especially now that help's arrived. With provisions. Ah, here we Beef, wonton, lobster, shrimp, fried rice, pineapple chicken, and pork chop suey. Mmm, sounds fantastic. Even to my poor dull taste buds. <laughs> hey, where's Laura? I brought dinner for three. 
Well, she should be back any time. She went to check out a location for her restaurant. It sounded perfect. Oh, well, let's get everything all ready. She may be in the mood for celebration when she comes in. I don't have anything to celebrate. The property wasn't even for sale. Not for sale? But, but I thought you talked to the owner on the telephone. Well, I thought I did, too. I told him he'd called me in answer to my ad. But he swore it wasn't he who called. Then who was it? He said it must have been some joker. Some joke. I wonder why anyone would do something like that. Don't ask me. Maybe running a wanted ad in the paper on my own wasn't such a good idea. Oh, shouldn't be anything wrong with that. Let's see the ad. Oh, my God. Nikki, what's the matter? What is it, Buffett? That story in the paper. Look what it says. I pointed to a small news item at the bottom of the page. Woman found strangled was the headline. Below it, with disbelieving eyes, I read, Early this morning, the body of a woman identified as Kathleen Windsor was found in her apartment at Seabury House on Winnicott Road. She'd been strangled. Grief in the darkness, grief and despair. Nowhere, nowhere, someone to care. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, Face of the Foe. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Patricia Powers' Face of the Foe was adapted for radio by Shirley Gordon. Jessica Walter is Nicole. Joseph Campanella is Chris. And Judy Karn is Laura. Featured in the cast are Gail Bonney as Sybil, Alice Reinhardt as Kathleen, and Don Diamond as Matrai. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer, Rochelle Sherman, associate producer, and Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater.
presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... Good evening. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Patricia Powers' eerie saga of a neighborhood besieged. Face of the foe. Starring Jessica Walter. Joseph Campanella. And Judy Kahn. Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Ordinarily, the greatest winter concern for Montreal residents is hockey. But this is no ordinary winter in Montreal. Only the climate is as usual. And Canadians have learned to deal with inclement weather. But in one particular neighborhood, there's something outside more terrible than snow. Or so it would seem to young Nicole Nugent. She enlisted the company of the gentleman-manner janitor of her building to join her in walking an hysterical woman, one Kathleen Windsor, safely home. Seeing the middle-aged woman's plush apartment and frilly little girl bedroom, and having witnessed her flirtatious manner with her male escort... Nicole concludes that the shadowy pursuer that Miss Windsor claimed was following her home in the night was merely the product of a lonely spinster's fertile imagination. But now, Kathleen Windsor is dead. And for Nicole Nugent, a story in the newspaper lends credence to the theory that there is a fiend on the loose, and he's somewhere very close by. Face of the Foe will continue after this word. Maybe the man who killed her was someone else, someone she knew. Why, why do you say that? What, how did he get in? She wouldn't open a door to a stranger, would she? Especially if she had really just escaped from a man following her. Chris is right, Nikki. It doesn't make sense. It must have been someone she knew. Which means it doesn't have anything to do with you and what happened last night. So try to put the whole thing out of your mind. I'll fix us all a drink. And then I'm going to say goodnight, Buffett. Let you put that poor stuffy head of yours to bed. Bed was one thing, but sleep was another. My head began to throb. I didn't know whether it was from my cold or the image I couldn't keep out of my mind. Kathleen Windsor with her little girl curls and big blue please-like-me eyes, lying lifeless beneath the ruffled canopy of her four-poster bed under the sightless glass-button stare of the giant plush teddy bear in the corner. The sudden ring of the telephone startled me. Laura was evidently sleeping too soundly to hear it. Lucky Laura. Hello? Miss Prescott. No, this isn't... Where is she? Who is this? Is she out with a boyfriend? Who is this calling? 
I'll call again. Was that, I wondered. As far as I knew, Laura had no man in her life. And the man on the phone, whoever he was, sounded like someone she wouldn't want to have in it. In the morning, I mentioned what happened. Norman Roxburgh. I'm sure that's who it was. Only what a nerve, calling and asking questions about my business, as if he had a right to know. Who is he? Oh, just someone in my restaurant administration class. Just hang up on him if he calls again. Hey, your cold sounds a little better. How do you feel? My cold's better. I'm worse. The ache has gone down into my bones. Well, that sounds like the flu. Better spend another day bound up by the fire. I'll have to. I'm not good for anything else. Between flu bugs and your telephone lothario, not to mention murder, I didn't get much sleep last night. Well, it's Sunday. You can sleep all day. But it seemed I'd barely gotten settled on the sofa and begun to drowse off when Laura gently shook me awake. Sorry, Nicky, but I'm afraid you're going to have company. Oh, oh no. Who? Your Aunt Emily. She just phoned. I tried to put her off, but you know your Aunt Emily. I wouldn't trade my Aunt Emily for a round dozen of anybody else's aunts. And granted, she was a little eccentric. Some people might even say crazy. The truth of the matter was, she was just gloriously herself. A blithe spirit. Unfortunately, though I was only 24 and she was close to 70, just listening to Aunt Emily took more energy than I was up to in my present condition. You sound like a frog, dear, but never mind. They turn into princes, you know. As bad as I felt, I had to admit the sight of Aunt Emily was like a spring tonic. Lately, she'd been attending Sunday feasts at the Park Avenue Hare Krishna Temple. She loved the food, the incense, the dancing, the hand clapping. And she generally dropped in at our apartment afterward, swathed in a sheet with tilax painted on her forehead and 108 Joppa prayer beads adorning her scrawny neck. Today, however, she'd just come from her regular attendance at St. Simon's Church, for which she wore the slightly more conventional attire of a jaunty bright wool cape over knickers and argyle knee socks. Laura, do you suppose I could have a drop or two of brandy? Of course. We'll all have some. Be good for Nicky's cold. I had some shocking news at church today, and I'm quite unstrung. What news, Aunt Emily? Murder. The second member of our church choir in a week. First Elsie, and now Kathleen. Kathleen Windsor sang in the choir at your church? And now she's been strangled by someone, the same as Elsie was. And both of them on Winnicott Road, where I live. Oh, Aunt Emily. I know, it's a bit unnerving. Everybody in the choir warned me to be careful. But I told them no one would bother killing an old woman like me. Neither of the murderer's two victims were old or young. Both middle-aged, for whatever that might mean. Well, the fact is... I've been getting some strange vibes from Kathleen lately. What do you, what do you mean, vibes? He, she just wasn't herself. She was usually so quiet and subdued. A good little girl, as her mother would say. But these past few weeks, something had really turned her on. She started acting all nervous and giggly. Probably because her mother was away in the hospital. She felt free for a change. That must have been it. I can't think of anything else it could be. You don't suppose she could have found a boyfriend? Heavens, no. Kathleen was deathly afraid of men. Only... Only what, Aunt Emily? I remember one Sunday a month or so ago, just after her mother went into the hospital. 
Kathleen didn't stay after church for choir practice. Was that unusual? Very. She never missed choir practice. And as it happened, I had to skip that Sunday, too, because of a cold. I had a throat as froggy as yours, Nikki. No good for singing. Well, so what happened, Adam? Well, I was walking home... And about a block away from church, I could swear I saw Kathleen Windsor in a car with a man. This whole business is just another reminder that we should all live life to the fullest while we're here. So hurry and get rid of that cold, Nicky, and give that man of yours a kiss for me when you see him. I will, Aunt Emily. Don't disturb yourselves, dears. I'll see myself out. Oh, he wore flowing robes and sandals, and he came with love for all. With a flourish of her cape, she pirouetted across the room and was gone. I was glad it was winter. With the streets frozen over with snow and sleet, Aunt Emily had temporarily stored away her favorite mode of transportation. A gleaming red motorcycle. I spent the rest of Sunday catching snatches of fevered sleep. Monday morning, I felt slightly more human, but not quite up to my job as secretary to the principal of Kensington School for Girls. When Laura left for work, I called in sick and went through my ritual of lighting the fire in the living room, bringing a blanket and Kleenex in from the bedroom and curling up on the sofa again. I didn't stay curled up long. Forgive me, mademoiselle, but I am Detective Lieutenant Noel Philippe uh, from Homicide. Homicide? You are Mademoiselle Nugent, are you not? Yes, I am, but... Then you're the person I've come to see. Uh, May may I come in? Yes, yes, of course. I don't understand. I wish to question you about Kathleen Windsor, the woman who was murdered. You knew her, did you not? No, not really. I mean, I I only met her once, briefly. Uh, Briefly or not, mademoiselle. According to the information I've been given, you were one of the last persons to see Kathleen Windsor alive. Uh, You and a monsieur, Georges Montreuil. Yes, that's true. But how did you... Apparently, you didn't consider such a fact of sufficient importance to inform the police? I'm sorry. I I suppose I should have. Yes, mademoiselle, you... You should have. We cannot apprehend killers when the public will not cooperate with us. Maybe they're afraid to get involved. Afraid of the police. (sighs) We are all afraid of the police, mademoiselle. Because we are all guilty. But now I think you and I must have our little conversation. Tardy though it may be. Lieutenant Philippe was of medium height with a weary face and bleak gray eyes that looked as though they'd seen too much of the seamy side of life. He looked like a tired bloodhound as he trailed me into the living room and sank heavily into the chair by the fire. Please tell me everything that happened when Miss Windsor came here last Friday night. Uh, Do not omit anything, no matter how trivial it may seem. Lieutenant? Uh, Yes, mademoiselle? The two murders on Winnicott Road. Do you think the same person committed them both? It is too soon to draw such conclusions. 
A psychopath may read of a murder in the paper, and his feverish brain is inspired to duplicate the act. Thus, one murder often leads to another. What a terrible thought. Mm. In the two incidents on Winnicott Road, there is the similarity in the method of murder, strangulation. But there is also an important difference. The Grunberger woman had not been sexually molested. The Windsor woman was. Of course, in the Kronberger case, the killer may have intended to molest his victim, but did not have the time. The car in the garage was running, and he knew the owner might return at any moment. It's all too terrible to think about. Yes. Murder is never pleasant to contemplate, mademoiselle. But in the event of two murders of women in your immediate vicinity, I suggest you must give it some thought, hmm? Yes, yes, we will. We'll be careful. There, There is sometimes a sexual element in murders by strangulation. We may be dealing with a sexual deviate. Have you talked to Mr. Mitry, Lieutenant? Perhaps he might remember something I've forgotten. Ah, I, I, I was wondering when you would think to bring up Monsieur... A try. He was, after all, the only other known person to be with Kathleen Windsor just before her death. He's a very nice man, Lieutenant. I- I'm sure you'd find him most obliging. Yeah. I'm afraid, Mademoiselle Nugent, at this moment we do not find him so. Mr. Matry, it seems, has disappeared before we could question him. Disappeared? Huh. Uh, tell me what you know of the man. Not very much, I suppose. I've lived here a year, and he's always been very polite and helpful. And that is why you thought of him to accompany you uh, and Miss Windsor to her home, is that correct? Yes. And also, I remembered his telling me once that he liked to take walks at night. Ah. But, Lieutenant, that doesn't mean he walked around murdering women. Oh, perhaps not. Perhaps not. But then, what reason do you suggest he had for not wanting to be questioned by the police? A very good one, as a matter of fact. I'm thinking of a conversation I had with him last summer. He was working outside in the garden, and I was admiring the flowers he planted. He told me then how he had fled from Hungary in the 1956 revolution, how terrible it was there for his family and himself. He was so thankful to be living here in Montreal. Yes, you know. Oh, that's very interesting. Well, don't you see? No wonder he ran away from the police. He was afraid from his past experiences. Huh. A sound enough theory, perhaps, mademoiselle. Except for one thing... What is that, Lieutenant? Uh, I'm afraid we have uncovered another reason for his fear of the police. The record shows that your nice, quiet Monsieur Matry has actually served two terms in prison. What for? For molesting women, Mademoiselle. <laughs> The most puzzling aspect of the Kathleen Windsor murder is how the killer got into her apartment. There was no sign of forced entry, which leads to the obvious conclusion that she willingly opened the door to whomever it was. And do you think it might have been George Matry? He had witnessed the type of woman she was and knew that she was alone in her apartment. He could very easily have returned and gained admittance on the pretext that he wanted to be certain everything was all right. And you think she would have let him in? Mademoiselle, have you not been insisting all along that 
he was not the type that anyone would take to be a murderer. Lieutenant Philippe had made his point. He lifted himself wearily out of his chair, reclaimed his battered hat, and left me with the information that a man would be stationed in our building in the event that George Matry returned. When I finally crawled back into my cocoon by the fire, I was shivering again. But this time it wasn't from the cold. Luckily, Chris chose just the right moment to cheer me up with a phone call. Stop trying to blame yourself, Muffet. You had no way of knowing about Mr. Matry. Maybe he isn't a murderer. Maybe he's just a sweet little dirty old man. <laughs> oh, Chris. I'm so glad you called. Well, I figured you might need a little cheering up. And how about continuing the treatment with a night out this Friday, if you're feeling okay by then? If I'm not okay by then, I'll never be. Guy and Lisa have invited us to a play at a buffet supper at their place afterward. Sounds like the perfect cure for a shut-in. What's the play about? Oh, something written by a friend of Guy's, a comedy. Just as long as it isn't a murder mystery. Even if the play were disappointing, an evening with Lisa and one of her buffet suppers could never be. She was a friend from my school days, and Chris had become as fond of her as I was. Lisa had met and married Guy Saberin less than a year ago. Unfortunately, neither Chris nor I liked the man, but we'd learned to tolerate him for Lisa's sake. At the moment, I found myself thinking I was going to have to get well by Friday night if I were going to stomach a whole evening in Guy Saberin's company. Hello? Aunt Emily, Nikki. How are you feeling? Oh, getting better, and you? Splendid. Nikki, I was wondering, do you suppose Laura will be willing to bake a birthday cake for me? I'd pay her for the ingredients, of course. Laura makes such beautiful cakes. And Donald's such a nice boy. So much soul. I'm sure Laura would love to, Aunt Emily. But who is Donald? Donald Hamill. I got him from the drop-in center. The drop-in center? For homeless use. On Leary. He comes from Windsor. Couldn't stand it at home and ran away. Says he won't go back again, and I don't blame him from what he tells me. Aunt Emily, you didn't... Bring him home with me? Well, of course I did. Where else was there for the poor boy to go? I'm going to keep him with me until he finds a job and can look after himself. Aunt Emily, I don't think it's very wise of you to take in some strange boy like that. Oh, Donald isn't strange. He's a very good boy. Awfully quiet and shy, but not sullen like Tony. Now, you're right about Tony. He is a strange boy. And I'm not so sure I should have let him come home with me. Who is Tony, Aunt Emily? Tony Bartha, Donald's friend. Although I wonder if he really is. I know for a fact Tony's going steady with Mary Jane. And I'm afraid he has Donald flirting with her. Mary Jane? Is that someone else you brought home with you? Oh, dear, no. Mary Jane is marijuana, dear. You mean Tony Bartha's into drugs? Oh, Aunt Emily, I don't think you should let him stay with you. Don't worry. I'm not going to for long. I don't like his attitude. Cheers. The rest of the day passed uneventfully, except for another encounter with T. Oliphant when I went to the lobby to get the mail. I was wearing a cable-knit sweater and my oldest pair of corduroy slacks for warmth, and T. Oliphant looked me up and down in the same manner that he had Kathleen Windsor. A new thought occurred to me. Maybe he just didn't approve of women wearing pants. I scuttled past him quickly and hurried back to the sheltering circle of my fire like primitive man huddling against evil spirits. A few moments later, I had fallen sound asleep. 
It was dark in the room when I woke up. Laura had her class on Monday nights and didn't come home for dinner. The room was chilly. I put more wood on the fire and turned on the lamp. I thought of all the things I needed to do before I left on my trip to Jamaica. Clothes to sew, laundry to do, Christmas presents to wrap. I still didn't have the energy. I picked up a book to read, making certain it wasn't the one I'd been reading the night Kathleen Windsor had come pounding on my door. (gasps) Laura came in so quietly I didn't hear her. I gave a start when she suddenly materialized beside me. She looked strange, her face pale, her eyes staring. Laura, is something wrong? There's someone with me, Nikki. May I ask him in? Of course. She walked to the hall and in a moment returned with a man at her side. Pleasant looking, sensitive features with dark blonde hair that just brushed the collar of his expensively tailored suit. Mr. Brooke, this is my roommate, Nicole Nugent. Nikki, this is Julian Brooke. How do you do? I'm pleased to meet you, Mr. Brooke. Laura, what's wrong? Something is, I can tell. I'm afraid Miss Prescott doesn't feel yet like talking about it, Miss Nugent. You see, she's just had a ruddy bad scare. Laura, what happened? A man attacked her on the street. Tried to drag her off into the park. Got to get out of this city of night. Find me, oh, find me, my city of light. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, Face of the Foe. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. Listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Patricia Powers, Face of the Foe, was adapted for radio by Shirley Gordon. Jessica Walter is Nicole. Joseph Campanella is Chris. And Judy Karn is Laura. Featured in the cast are Lorene Tuttle as Emily, Shep Mencken as Philippe, and Richard Dawson as Julian. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes... And listen here to the Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater.
every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Kohler's Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... Good evening. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Patricia Powers' eerie saga of a neighborhood besieged. Face of the foe. Starring Jessica Walter. Joseph Campanella. Judy Kahn in Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Winter in Montreal. Cold, blustery. A good time to stay indoors around a warm fire. Especially if you're a young woman like Nicole Nugent and living with a female friend like Laura Prescott. Staying indoors is an especially good idea if two women living just down the street have been murdered within the past week, which they have. Some male companionship, a shoulder to lean on, would perhaps be a comfort. Nicole has Christopher Galloway, but he's off working on a novel. And Laura has just returned home accompanied by a gentle-mannered young Englishman named Julian Brooke. A comfort? Hardly. For Laura Prescott met the man while on her way home, while another man, whose face she couldn't see, was about to drag her off into the park. Face of the foe continues after this message. body ached, my head was throbbing. And then Laura was there, back from her night class, white as a sheet. I got sick all over again. A man attacked her on the street and tried to drag her off into the park. Oh, Laura, how dreadful. Are you all right? Yes, I'm all right. Thanks to Mr. Brooke. You tell her about it, will you, Julian? After I pour you some brandy. Thanks, Nicky. I'm just a bit shaky, that's all. Mr. Brooke? Yes, I could do with a spot myself. Thank you. Now, tell me. Well, I was driving on Cote Saint-Luc, uh, there along the park, you know, between Godfrey and Winnicott Road, when suddenly I saw this woman on the sidewalk struggling with a man. I braked my car quickly and dashed out to help her. That was a risky thing to do, but thank God you did. By then, the blackguard was trying to drag her off into the park. I shouted a warning, and he let go of her and ran off. Left poor Laura here shaking and sobbing on the grass. Did he hurt you, Laura? No, he just handled me roughly. That's all. She'll have a few bruises, I should imagine. But Lord knows what he would have done if Julian hadn't stopped to help me. It was foolish of me to be walking by it, especially after two women have just been murdered in this area. 
And considering the man who accosted you might possibly have been the murderer, I think we'd better call the police. I was expecting the battered little figure of Lieutenant Detective Philippe to reappear at our door in answer to Julian's call. But instead, a pair of lesser police officers arrived to take notes on the incident and firmly caution Laura and me to do no more walking the streets alone at night. Later in the week, I was especially glad that Julian Brooke had come into Laura's life because Norman Roxburgh, the obnoxious man in her restaurant administration class, was still giving her trouble. He even grabbed my arm and tried to keep me from getting into the taxi last night after class. I can't reason with him, Nicky. He really hurt me. As if I didn't have enough black and blue marks from that awful little encounter in the park. That is awful. But, but what can you do about him? I've already done the only thing I can. Switch classes. They're on the same nights, but begin and end an hour earlier. So hopefully I won't have to see anything more of Mr. Roxburgh. But a lot more of Julian Brooke? Laura only smiled. But the look in her sea-green eyes answered my question. It was Friday evening, and we were both dressing for our dates. Hers with Julian, mine with Chris and Lisa and Guy Sabrin. And Emily was also coming by to pick up the birthday cake she'd asked Laura to bake. Do you think your Aunt Emily's friend will like it? Oh, he should love it. According to Aunt Emily, Donald Hamill is a nice boy with a lot of soul. Leave it to your Aunt Emily to take in a couple of homeless boys up the street. Mm, that worries me, especially from the way she describes the other one. She thinks he may be using drugs. Mm, that could be risky. You know, Aunt Emily, we should all live life to the fullest while we're... That's probably her now. I'll get it. But it was Julian Brooke, looking youthful and attractive, in a narrow-cut royal blue coat that set off his fair skin and dark blonde hair. I ushered him into the living room and told him Laura would be out in a few moments. He settled on the sofa with a cocktail... And as I left the room, I saw him bring out a pad of paper and a pen and start sketching. Laura had told me he was a designer of modern furniture. This time it was Aunt Emily, in a pair of plum velvet knickers, white silk knee socks, and a white silk blouse with ruffles of lace at her throat and wrists. She looked like a transplanted court page. And to my surprise, she had her two homeless boys in tow. Boys? This is my niece, Nicole. Nikki, this is Donald Hamill and Tony Bartha. It wasn't hard to tell which was which. The tall, gangling boy with a shock of wheat blonde hair and a big country guitar slung over his shoulder had to be Donald. The dark, underfed-looking one with a sullen expression on his weasel face, Tony. She sat down cross-legged on the floor, as she always did, and Donald settled beside her, cradling his guitar in his lap and stroking it fondly as though it were a baby. Tony Bartha, meanwhile, stayed scowling in a corner apart from the group. Aunt Emily's sparrow-bright eyes darted at once to the sketch Julian Brooke had been doodling. It wasn't furniture design, after all, but a skillful line drawing in red ink of a sailing ship. Its clouds of canvas billowing in imaginary wind, the figure of an angel blowing a trumpet at its bow. That's a really far-out sketch, Mr. Brooke. Is she a clipper ship? She's the flying cloud, a beauty. You were sailing enthusiast, Mrs. Teasdale? Oh, yes. I love beauty and motion. You know, it's funny. I could swear I saw a very similar sketch of a clipper ship recently. Only where? Do you ever pop into the Warwick Tea Room by any chance? Of course, that's it. I go there sometimes after church for Sunday brunch. They have a whole wall of clipper ships, 
all done in red ink as it happens. Precisely. They're all there. The cutty sock, the mopole, the flying spurs, the lancelot, Ariel. Oh, ships have such romantic-sounding names. I must think of a magic, exciting name for my motorcycle. What do you think, Nicky? I'm sorry, Aunt Emily. I'm only glad it's winter and you're not riding that thing. <laughs> Lovely girl, my niece, but so conservative. Aha! Let's hope this is that man of yours. I'll bet you he could think of a name. It was Chris with Guy and Lisa. They made a striking-looking couple. Lisa was a statuesque blonde with a Valkyrian profile. Her thick golden hair braided into a coronet, adding a queenly touch to her Earth Mother figure. Guy Sabrin was lean and suave-looking, his dark satyr face set off by a pair of bushy brows that curled upward like the horns of a devil and a carefully groomed black Van Dyke beard. A devil's beard? What, Aunt Emily? That detective investigating Kathleen Windsor's murder. He's been asking me to describe the man I saw her with in the car that day, and I couldn't for the life of me remember what he looked like. But see, Mr. Sabrin reminded me. He had a Van Dyke beard like mine? Yes, Mr. Sabrin. The man had a beard like yours. Exactly like yours. With the apartment full of people and the whole neighborhood nervous about the recent murders, leave it to Aunt Emily to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. You have a devil's beard, Mr. Sabrin. Please, Mrs. Teasdale, it's a Van Dyke or a space beard, if you like. But don't call it a devil's beard. You'll frighten my wife. She's perfectly right, darling. You do have a decidedly satanic look. But it doesn't frighten me. Well, I don't want to frighten anyone either, but when we were on our way to the building just now, I caught sight of a man standing back among the trees across the lane. I'm quite sure it was someone spying on this address. I think maybe you'd better inform the police. But I'm sure he is the police. Lieutenant Philippe told me he was stationing a man here in case George Matry came back. Oh, well, that's a relief. Please, let's not talk of the murders this evening. I agree, let's not. In fact, I have some very special good news to relate later tonight. Haven't I, Lisa? Oh, what is it? Can't you tell us now? No, no. I've bought a special bottle of champagne to open with supper after the theater. My news will have to keep until then. Chris and I exchanged a look. It was going to be a typical Guy Sabrin evening. His tickets to a play written by his friend, followed by his big news over a bottle of his champagne. He had to be the big shot. The last big news he'd had to share with us was the announcement of his promotion to senior salesman with the distillery firm he worked for. He had bought Lisa a mink coat to celebrate. That was Guy Sabrin's one redeeming quality in my eyes, his almost slavish devotion to Lisa. Well, your celebration may keep, but Donald's won't. Some of the boys and girls from the drop-in center are coming to share that beautiful cake you made, Laura. Have you thanked Miss Prescott, Donald? Donald? Oh, please, Aunt Emily, he doesn't have to. I was happy to do it. Donald is painfully shy, I'm afraid. But not when it comes to his music. Why don't you thank everybody with a song, Donald? That lovely one you wrote. It always makes me cry. It's called City of Night. Go ahead, Donald. Asphalt and concrete, neon and steel. Nowhere, no 
bolted doors on the houses Shutter doors on the hearts Broken dreams in the concrete Murder dreams in the steel Grief in the darkness, grief and despair Nowhere, nowhere, someone to care Got to get out of this city of night Find me, oh find me My city of light No one spoke for a moment And Emily was wiping the tears from her eyes And I felt a lump in my throat I'd found myself thinking about poor Kathleen Windsor alone in her apartment, the lonely, love-starved prey of a depraved killer. Then I looked at Donald and saw his sensitive mouth begin to tremble and moisture brimming in his own eyes. Donald's not used to people being good to him. My thoughtful Chris moved over to talk to the boy while Laura put the cake in a hat box for Aunt Emily to carry home. It seemed Aunt Emily was right about Donald Hamill. He was a nice boy with a lot of soul. She was equally right about Tony Bartha, who had done nothing but stand in the corner and look sullen the whole time. I didn't care much for his attitude either. The so-called comedy by Guy Sabrin's friend turned out to be a dismal tragedy. But Lisa's buffet dinner was more than making up for it. If there was any humor in that comedy, I'm afraid it was too sick to live. Of course, the rising young novelist Christopher Galloway is a far better judge than an unpublished amateur playwright like myself. Well, I've never written anything more than an occasional postcard. But I judged the play tonight to be an unqualified bomb. I guess you're right. (laughs) My old buddy missed the mark with that one. Darling, why don't you bring out your champagne now? Right. We've been waiting all evening for this big news of yours, Guy. It's worth waiting for, I promise you. Here we go. Very special champagne for a very special occasion. (laughs) Mm. Oh, look at those beautiful bubbles. Mm, And I'm ready to toast, if you'll just tell us what we're toasting. A toast to my beautiful wife, Lisa, who is soon to make me a father. Oh, Lisa, that's wonderful. Congratulations, Guy. Now, that is big news. Ah, that isn't all. I have a little something else that's a surprise to Lisa as well. A small present, my love, in honor of the occasion. Uh, Guy, what is it? Open it and see. Uh, Emeralds. But how... I have a bit of news all my own, darling. I was just given a bonus as the firm's top salesman. Guy, that's marvelous. Yeah, nice going, Guy. But I noticed Lisa didn't say a word. She stared at the emerald necklace for a long moment, then quietly snapped the case shut and put it away. While Chris humored Guy, I followed Lisa into the bedroom. Ah, Lisa, you're worried about something. It's not the baby, is it? Oh, no, no. The baby's the most beautiful thing that's happened. Then what is it? It's Guy. He worries me. A mink coat, an emerald necklace. We can't afford such things. But Guy explained. First his promotion, and now a bonus. He's making all that up. I know he is. 
He didn't get promoted. And there hasn't been any bonus. That, that's what worries me so, Nicky. Where is Guy getting so much money? Chris continued to be busy with his book. So I contented myself with his promise to spend all of Sunday afternoon and evening with me and settled down at my sewing machine to finish my vacation wardrobe. It was Aunt Emily calling to tell Laura how much everybody had enjoyed her Schwarzwalder Kirschtort. Donald had had a successful party with the kids from the drop-in center. He had played his guitar and they had all wrapped around the clock, as Aunt Emily put it. But then she got on the subject of Tony Bartha. I've seen him hanging around Crestview Public School several times lately. Why would someone his age want to hang around an elementary school? My point exactly. And the other day I saw him talking to a man in a big flashy car parked at the corner by the school. When he saw me, they stopped talking and the man quickly drove away. Did you ask Tony about it? Yes. He said the man had just been asking for some directions. But I don't think I can take Tony at his word. Aunt Emily, do you think there might be a connection between Tony's taking drugs and... Well, could he be selling them to schoolchildren? That very thought occurred to me. He's no good, I'm afraid. Certainly he's no good for Donald. Then you shouldn't be letting him stay at your house. I've decided I'm not going to any longer. I'm telling him tonight that he has to leave by Monday. He can sleep at the center until he finds some place else to go. I hope he doesn't give you any problem about leaving. He's such a surly character. Oh, he'll give me some of his lip, I suppose. But don't worry. I'll just tune him out. Bye, dear. By the time Sunday afternoon rolled around, Laura was out on still another date with Julian Brooke. And after slaving all weekend over a hot bobbin, I was eagerly looking forward to my promised afternoon and evening with Chris. We were going to go antique shop browsing in old Montreal, then have dinner. I'm sorry to disappoint you, Nicky, but I have to write this afternoon. You go ahead and I'll meet you wherever you say for dinner. But, Chris, you promised. I know I did, Muffet, but I didn't get my quota of pages done this morning, so I'll just have to keep at it. But it's only a matter of a few hours. A few hours counts a lot when you're on a deadline. Now, you know how it is when I'm in the middle of a book. I know that the book always seems to be more important than anything else. That's not true, Nicole, but it is my work and I expect you to understand. I said I'd meet you for dinner now. Isn't that good enough? And what am I supposed to do between the time the shops close at five and you meet me at seven? Walk the streets? Go into Notre Dame Cathedral and pray for my soul. I'll be here, Nicole. If you still want to have dinner, call me. The only times Chris ever called me by my given name, Nicole, was when he was angry. That's the way it would always be with Chris and me. There would always be a book between us. A damned book. Oh, I knew I was being childish, but I was feeling neglected. I looked at the summer frock I had just finished hemming and thought of my trip to Jamaica. Maybe I would meet someone else. Someone who wouldn't put his work ahead of me. One thing I was sure of, I wasn't going to call Chris back. I'd find somebody else to go shopping and have dinner with. And if it couldn't be a man at the moment, well, there was always Aunt Emily. I'm sorry, Nicky, but it appears I've got hold of that flu bug of yours. In fact, as soon as one of the boys come in, I'm going to send him over to borrow a heating pad from you, if you don't mind. Oh, of course, Aunt Emily. A and I hope you feel better soon. 
Oh, I will, dear. You know me. I never stay down for long. And it's just as well about this afternoon. Antiques aren't really my bag. They're too old for me. <laughs> You're right, Aunt Emily. They are. Oh, there's the door. Probably one of the boys now. Ciao, dear. So I stayed home, watched TV, and cooked myself a lonely hamburger for dinner. Too stubborn to call Chris and apologize. Neither of the boys had showed up to borrow the heating pad for Aunt Emily, so I decided to take it over to her myself. Perhaps I could cheer her up a little, I thought. But I knew it was far more likely it would be she who cheered me up. Feeling depressed over my quarrel with Chris, I gave no thought to my walking alone to Winnicott Road. Aunt Emily's apartment building was on the corner. The main entrance was on Côte Saint-Luc, but I always used the side door on Winnicott. My aunt's apartment was on the main floor, number three. I was about to knock when I noticed the door wasn't quite closed. The boys probably hadn't closed it on their way in. I'd tell Aunt Emily to caution them not to be so careless. I pushed the door open and walked in, calling out so that Aunt Emily wouldn't be startled. Aunt Emily? Aunt Emily? It's Nikki. The apartment was deathly quiet. Aunt Emily must be asleep, I thought. I crossed the living room, passed the door to the kitchen, and stopped dead. I saw her lying there on the cold linoleum, lying stiffly on her back with her bluish-tinged, fear-contorted face staring up at me. The realization slapped me across the face. Aunt Emily had been murdered. Grief in the darkness, grief and despair Nowhere, nowhere, someone to care Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes And listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense Face of the Foe I'm Rod Serling And this is The Zero Hour Listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Patricia Powers' Face of the Foe was adapted for radio by Shirley Gordon. Jessica Walter is Nicole. Joseph Campanella is Chris. And Judy Karn is Laura. Featured in the cast are Richard Dawson as Julian, Lorene Tuttle as Emily, Vic Perrin as Guy, Gene Bates as Lisa, and Stan Hoffman as Donald. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher. and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes... And listen here to the Zero Hour.
the Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... Good evening. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Patricia Powers' eerie saga of a neighborhood besieged. Face of the foe. Starring Jessica Walter. Joseph Campanella. And Judy Kahn. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. As in every winter, Montreal is crippled by seasonal blizzards. But residents along Winnicott Road are also paralyzed by something they're not accustomed to. The threat of being raped and murdered. Tension in the vicinity is running high. Doors are locked and chained. Friends and neighbors eye one another with suspicion. For Laura Prescott, having been assaulted in the park, a new boyfriend has brought an element of security into her life. But for her roommate, Nicole Nugent, the killer, whoever he may be, has struck tragically close to home. The third murder victim is Nicole's own Aunt Emily, the picturesque, blithe spirit who was apparently loved by all. Three questions linger in the minds of all concerned. Who is this madman lurking about? Why is he doing these terrible things? And finally, and most desperately, who will be his next victim? Face of the Foe continues in a moment. It was Monday morning, the day after Aunt Emily's murder. The sky was gray and heavy, with sweeps of angry black clouds that foretold a storm. The heavens, I thought, were protesting the slaughter of the innocent. Chris was with me, our quarrel forgotten and his book willingly set aside. Laura was there, along with Julian Brooke, his gentlemanly manner abandoned as he expressed outrage over Aunt Emily's murder with his mouth set in a firm, hard line. And Lisa and Guy had come. Guy, for a change, silent and subdued. Lisa, beautiful and serene as ever, had taken me in her arms and rocked me gently, urging me to cry. But the tears wouldn't come. And now there was Lieutenant Philippe sitting wearily across from me, his cynical gray eyes looking bleak as death. We know you're tired and under great strain, mademoiselle. We too are tired and under strain. There must be no more of these violent murders. It's too late to say that now, Lieutenant. My aunt is gone. Yes, I, I know how you must feel, mademoiselle, but 
The danger continues until the killer or killers are apprehended. There is nothing I can tell you, Lieutenant. I, I can't imagine who would ever want to kill my aunt. Your aunt had two boys staying with her. Uh, both boys seemed to have disappeared. But she was good to them. They wouldn't have any reason to hurt her, except... Except what, mademoiselle? Well, one of them, Tony Bartha. My aunt was going to ask him to leave. She thought he was into the drug scene. He might have become angry and... Then, Mademoiselle Nugent, there was someone, after all, who might have had reason to harm your aunt. Hmm? I suppose so, Lieutenant. Uh, it seems there's always someone. Lieutenant, was my aunt sexually molested? No, Mademoiselle. She was spared that indignity. Although, as in the case of Elsie Grunberger... It may only have been that something frightened the killer away. And so my Aunt Emily, who loved life and lived it with such zest, now lay stiffly in a mahogany casket between a pair of flickering tapers in a flower-banked room of Hanson's funeral parlor, her eyes sealed forever against the world of Maya. A bewildering variety of people came to pay their last respects. The stunned and frightened remaining members of St. Simon's Choir, of course. And a dozen young monks from the Hare Krishna Temple in saffron-colored robes with tilaks painted on their foreheads. A group from the drop-in center with Donald Hamill and Tony Bartha conspicuously absent. A supermarket clerk, the woman from the cleaning shop, the tea importer on Blurry, where Aunt Emily had gone every month for her special blend of Darjeeling tea, who told me Aunt Emily had known almost as much about tea as he did, and a grizzled old shoemaker who said that Aunt Emily had been a woman after his own heart. She had always demanded that thick, stout soles be put on her shoes, none of those fashionable, skinny ones that wore out in no time. The shoes were for walking, weren't they? And she always had him put cleats on her heels so people could hear her coming. That was my Aunt Emily. I thought of her gleaming red motorcycle, stored away for the winter in her garage, and I knew what Aunt Emily would want me to do with it. If Donald Hamill ever returned, it would be his. It was the night following Aunt Emily's funeral, and Chris had suggested supper for just the two of us by the fire in his comfortable bachelor apartment. You're not eating anything, Nicky. What are you thinking about? Well, I was thinking about my trip... All this has certainly taken the shine out of it. Oh, but your Aunt Emily would be the first to urge you to go, despite everything. I know. That's why I'm going, despite everything. Three weeks in Jamaica is just what you need. But it seems a bad time for me to go away and leave Laura alone in the apartment. Oh, you think she's nervous about it? Why don't you suggest she go and stay with a friend while you're gone? You know, I think I will. Well, one thing we've decided, we're having a peephole installed in our apartment door. That's a good idea. You know, there's still that question of whether or not Kathleen Windsor and your Aunt Emily willingly admitted the murderer or someone they knew and trusted. I'm exhausted from trying to figure out who did it and how. I'll just have to trust that Lieutenant Philippe will eventually catch the murderer. <laughs> Lieutenant Philippe looks too tired to catch anybody. But you're right, Muffet. You try to put everything out of your mind except your trip. And giving you my answer when I get back. You don't even have to worry about that. Considering all that's happened, I can wait a little longer for your answer. Oh, Chris, you're so dear. I don't know why I keep putting you off. 
Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, eating her curds and whey. Along came a spider and sat down beside her, and frightened Miss Muffet away. Is that why you've always called me Muffet? Because you elude me. It's not just my preoccupation with writing that bothers you, Nicky. That's just part of it. You're afraid of love. You like the shallows, the quiet waters. But you're afraid of the whirlpools of love, afraid of being caught up, whirled away, lost in the maelstrom. You're right, Chris. I am afraid. But you have to take chances in life, Muffet. Make an act of faith and surrender yourself to the whirlpool without fear. That's what living is all about. I knew Chris's words about life and love were true. And I was going to do a lot of thinking about them all the time I was gone. The trouble with me was I was a coward. A coward about life and love and death. Before I knew it, it was Saturday. And I was in a plane, the terror and tragedy diminishing behind me as I headed for three sunny weeks in Jamaica. The first thing I did on my arrival in Port Antonio was enroll in the Meet the People program at the local tourist board. I was introduced to two Jamaican girls my age and taken on a round of activities that left little time to think of the grim events at home. Sightseeing, swimming, water skiing, rafting down the Rio Grande, and riding the trails up into the Blue Mountains. I was so busy that my first week in the islands flew by. Montreal and murder were beginning to seem very far away. But then I received a letter from Laura. Dear Nikki, we've been having sleet, snow, rain, and cold ever since you left. Doesn't that make you feel smug from where you sit under the Caribbean sun? No need to worry about me. Every time I peek through our new peephole, it's into the smiling face of my handsome English escort. The more I'm with Julian Brooke, the better I like him. And I'm with him a lot. One bit of news, for whatever it's worth. Guess who I saw coming out of the parish house next to St. Simon's Church? None other than our scowling neighbor from apartment 4, T. Oliphant. But without the mysterious brown cotton under his arm for a change. What do you make of that? Love, Laura. I wasn't sure what to make of it. Aunt Emily and the two other murder victims had been members of St. Simon's Choir. Lieutenant Philippe had suggested the killer, therefore, might very possibly be associated with St. Simon's. And now it appeared T. Oliphant was. Yet neither Kathleen Windsor nor Aunt Emily had shown any sign of recognizing him when he passed by them in the lobby of our apartment building. Then with a shudder, I recalled how he had looked at both of them in the same way, with that ugly sneer of his. I was glad to be so far away from Montreal at the moment, and relieved to know that Julian Brooke was looking after Laura. I was determined to enjoy my final week in Jamaica. I had splurged in a plush hotel suite, overlooking the dazzling white sandy beach and sparkling blue sea at Montego Bay. I took a leisurely breakfast on the balcony each morning, lazed on the beach until the afternoon when I went sightseeing. I thought about Chris hard at work on his book, but my mind refused to dwell on anything so serious as the question of our marriage. Then, all too soon it seemed, my vacation was over. And on my very last day in Jamaica, I received another letter from Laura. Dear Nikki, 
I decided to take your advice after all and stay with a friend until you come back. There's been the bother of several anonymous phone calls. You know, the kind where you pick up the receiver and only hear someone breathing on the other end. A little frightening after all this murder business. Chris is in Toronto for a quickie conference with his publisher, so Julian and I will meet you at the airport. Nikki, here we are. Oh, Laura, Laura, it's so good to see you. Hello, Julian. Welcome home, Nicole. Nikki, what a glorious tan. Wait till Chris sees you. Oh, I suppose you arranged this Montreal snowfall just for me. To make you feel at home. Laura and I had in mind taking you off to my place for a drink and a bite to eat as a bit of a homecoming celebration, if you're not too tired. I'm not too tired. I'd love it. Good. Then let's collect your luggage and be off. Julian Brooke had to be a very successful furniture designer. He drove us in his sleek black sports car to an opulent glass and steel structure in Westmount, where he escorted us up to his second-floor apartment into a spacious combination living room library elegantly furnished with sleek, modular furniture and an impressive display of rare books, paintings, and sculpture. He poured us cocktails and graciously toasted my homecoming, but I could see from the look he and Laura exchanged over their glasses that their relationship had been progressing well. A few moments later, a waiter appeared at the door with a catered dinner of delicious seafood. Just one of the services of the establishment. Catered meals at the tenant's request from the penthouse restaurant. As you can see, Julian believes in living in style. Well, why not if you can afford it? You're not the only world traveler, Nicky. Julian is taking off for Rome next week. Ah, but not for a vacation, however. Purely business. I'm going to see Giorgio Bartoli, the Italian designer, about that new plant I'm opening. Oh, it sounds exciting. Don't get him started, Nicky. His passion for innovative furniture is almost equal to his passion for boats. And speaking of passions, I'm taking Laura to see her favorite Spanish dance company at the club midnight next Saturday evening. Uh, do you suppose you and Chris might join us? It'll be my leave-taking party just before my plane takes off. Well, sounds lovely to me, but I'll have to check with Chris, of course. Julian will be going right to the airport. So if you and Chris come, I can ride home with you. Laura, tell me about the phone calls. The ones you mentioned in your last letter. Oh, I imagine whoever it was has become discouraged by now. Since I haven't been there to pick up the phone. I'm afraid it isn't so much those calls that caused Laura to abandon the apartment while you were away. Well, then what was it? What else has happened? I didn't want to write you about it while you were still on your vacation, Nicky. But now that you're back, you'll have to know. Know what? There's been another murder, I'm afraid. Oh, God, that makes four. Was it another poor woman strangled? Yes. In an apartment on Queen Mary near Godfrey. Just a block over from Winnicott Road. Was she a member of St. Simon's Choir like the others? I don't know. The papers didn't say. It was a very sparse account. The police are under a tremendous amount of pressure, I suspect. Four murders, and they don't seem any closer to an answer. All they've done is issue a warning to all women living alone in the area of Winnicott Road. A warning? That there's every reason now to think that all four murders are the work of one sick mind, a psychopath. And whoever he is, he doesn't like women.
Another murder. The fourth, just two weeks after Aunt Emily's. And it had happened in a building just a ten-minute walk away from Laura's and my apartment. The police, looking for logic, searching for clues to construct a pattern, concluded the killings were the work of a disordered mind. A mind that knew no logic, had no pattern. When Chris called on his return from Toronto, I was grateful for the sound of his voice and the feeling of his solid, reassuring presence near me again. I hope Jamaica was more fun than Toronto. It was beautiful, but I'm glad to be home, now that you're home, too. Well, that makes two of us, Muffet. And you might be interested to hear that somebody else is back in Montreal, too. Who? Donald Hamill. Donald? Where is he? At the moment, bunking in with me. I found him and his guitar camped on my doorstep when I got in late last night. After that little talk he and I had at your place on his birthday, I guess he felt comfortable with me. You're a comfortable kind of person, darling. Where has Donald been? He hitched out of the city in a panic, but then decided to come back and try to clear things up as far as he was concerned. He's agreed to let me take him down today to give the police his story. What is his story? And where is Tony Bartha? Donald says he doesn't know where Tony is. When they left your aunt's house that last day, they split up. And according to Donald, that's the last time he saw Tony. And Donald didn't ever go back to Aunt Emily's? Yes, he did. About 6.30, according to him. He found the door open and your aunt lying dead on the kitchen floor. Then maybe it was Tony who killed her. It could have been. Anyway, that was Donald's first thought. He panicked and took off. Do you think the police will believe his story? I don't know, but I think I do. So do I. Well, I'll let you know what the police think over dinner tonight. How about the carbon espresso at 7, okay? Oh, Nikki, with that tan you want to Oh, Chris, thank you. Now I know how much I missed you. Well, that's what I was counting on. Tell me, what happened with Donald today? Well, the police seemed to buy his story. He was interviewed by both Lieutenant Philippe of Homicide and an officer of the narcotics squad. Where is he now? At my place. I told him he could stay there until the authorities find a home to place him in, which they say will only take a week or two. But your book, Chris, can you work with Donald around? Oh, he's as wrapped up in that guitar of his as I am in my book. I doubt that either of us will even know the other is there. Nicky, you're back. Oh, Guy, I didn't see you come in. Hello, Guy. Oh, I'm glad I ran into you two. I have something to show you. Look. It's a surprise for Lisa. Do you think she liked them? Why, they're really beautiful earrings, Guy. Those green stones are emeralds, in case you're wondering. I hope Lisa likes them. How is Lisa? More beautiful than ever. Maternity becomes her. Lisa could never be anything but beautiful. I know. Every time I look at her, I find it hard to believe she's my wife. Do you really think she liked the earrings? That was Guy Sabarin's big problem. He was so unsure of himself that he could never stop putting on a big show, even with his wife. Poor Lisa. I knew how she was going to feel about another of Guy's expensive gifts. Where was he getting the money to buy them? That's what I wondered. Fortunately, for the sake of my intimate reunion dinner with Chris, Guy was too eager to spring his latest surprise on Lisa to linger long at our table. Between his deadline and the extra work I found piled up at the office after my three weeks away, Chris and I had no other chance to be together the rest of the week. By Friday evening, I felt up to nothing more than a light dinner and early to bed. 
As I opened the door on the quiet apartment, I realized it was the first time I'd been home alone since I came back, since the police had issued their grisly warning. I closed the door firmly and slid the chain lock into place. As I started for the kitchen... <gasps> Hello? 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 Who is this? Say something. Oh. I dropped the receiver back on the hook, drawing my hands away as though the phone were on fire. A chill shot up the length of my spine. I should have left the receiver off. But perhaps this time it was Chris or Laura calling home for some reason. Why be frightened of a silly telephone? Even if it was that creep calling back, I could just tell him to bug off. Hello? <gasps> Maybe I wasn't so brave after all. I decided to leave the phone off the hook and hope that no one would try to reach me. I'd have a quick dinner and get into bed. And tomorrow I'd suggest to Laura that we have our number changed. The monotonous hum of the phone off the hook was a little unnerving, but better than that sudden shrill ring in the empty apartment. I was about to take to my bedroom and hopefully let sleep shut out all my disquieting thoughts of prowling psychopaths in the night when... It was someone at the door. But who? No one had pressed the buzzer from the lobby. If it were Laura without her key, she would call out, not frighten me with that strange soft knocking. Who is it? Why didn't they answer? I was almost afraid to look through the peephole... But it seemed whoever it was wasn't going to go away. I put my eye to the opening and looked out straight into the cold, thick blend stare of T. Oliphant. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense. Face of the Foe. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Patricia Powers, Face of the Foe, was adapted for radio by Shirley Gordon. Jessica Walter is Nicole. Joseph Campanella is Chris. And Judy Karn is Laura. Featured in the cast are Shep Mencken as Philippe, Richard Dawson as Julian, and Vic Perrin as Guy. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... To the Zero Hour.
the Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Kohler's Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... Good evening. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week... Patricia Powers' eerie saga of a neighborhood besieged. Face of the Foe. Starring Jessica Walter. Joseph Campanella. And Judy Kahn. Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Winter at times seems interminable. After the first snowfall, the excitement is gone and it's all the same. Cold, bleak, and dreary. For Nicole Nugent, a three-week vacation in sunny Jamaica was just what the doctor ordered. And she returned to Montreal well-tanned, well-rested, and well-heeled. She had missed her friends, and that was good. Friends are everything. But she'd also missed something else. A fourth unsolved, inexplicable murder. And that was bad. It was the fourth such grisly event in a very short period of time. The victims were all women... All belonged to the same church. All lived in the same neighborhood. Nichols. And now Nicole Nugent is spending the evening at home, alone. There's a muffled knocking at the door. And she's looking through the peephole at a face. And one that she suspects might be the face of the foe. The conclusion of our story follows after this word. stepped back from the door and flattened myself against the wall, unmindful that he couldn't see me. I wasn't going to answer. T. Oliphant terrified me. I remembered the awful look he had given Kathleen Windsor the night she was murdered, and Aunt Emily just a few days before her murder. And then I remembered something else. The time that he had looked at me in the same way. The knocking had stopped. I had been standing against the wall for several minutes. Perhaps he had gone. I looked through the peephole. There was no sign of T. Oliphant. I had a dinner date with Chris before we were to join Julian Brooke and Laura to see the Spanish dance troupe at the club midnight. The festive mood of the evening, however, got off to a slow start. I felt uncomfortably out of sorts with a vague headache that I hoped would not develop into one of my crippling migraines. And Chris was tired from working on his book at such a hard pace. I suspected he was weary of his responsibility for Donald Hamill as well. 
I always worry a little when I go off and leave him alone. He's a good kid, but so naive and impressionable, he could get into trouble a block from home. I guess that's why Tony Bartha was able to get such a hold over him. Well, at this point, I wouldn't say Donald's his own man. Tony persuaded him to try heroin once, you know. Donald didn't like it. But Tony held the fact that he tried it over his head like a sword. Threatened to tell the police Donald was a junkie if he ever breathed a word about Tony's drug-pushing activities. Is Donald frightened now that he's told the police everything? No, just relieved. Like I say, he's a good kid. I like him. So did Aunt Emily. As soon as Donald knows where he's going, I want to give him her precious red motorcycle. I know she would have wanted him to have it. Oh, he'll love it. Probably almost as much as he loves that guitar of his. When we joined Julian Brooke and Laura in the starlight room, we found Julian preoccupied with the weather, concerned that the snowstorm might prevent his plane from taking off. If it keeps up, I think perhaps I'd better check with the airport. The storm should let up by morning. It wouldn't be too much of a problem if your plane couldn't leave till then, would it? No, I suppose not. Well, let's not let a little snow dampen our party. Now, what would you two like to drink? Nicky? Uh, Manhattan, I think. Scotch and soda for me, please. I'll tell you what, I'll go track down our waiter on my way to the phone. I may as well settle this airport business if I can, so we can all relax and enjoy ourselves. Don't be too adamant about leaving tonight, darling. You know, I wouldn't leave at all if I didn't have to. Well, it's too bad he can't wait until tomorrow to leave. He's anxious to be there as quickly as he can. The opening of this new plant is very important to him. Things look fairly serious between you two. There's no reason you and Nicky should have a corner on the market, you know. <laughs> Laura was in luck. Julian came back with the word that the airport was socked in by the storm. There wouldn't be a plane out until morning at the earliest. I'd like to say I'm sorry, darling, but I'm not. Now you don't have to dash off before the evening's over. Well, it upsets my plans in Rome a bit, but there's nothing I can do. And, of course, I'm not in any hurry to leave you alone. Well, no reason, then, why we shouldn't settle down to a pleasant evening. But only a few moments later, Chris was called away from the table to answer a telephone page. When Julian had finished his drink and was doodling on a cocktail napkin, another ship in red ink, when Chris returned... Chris's face was set in a deep, worried frown. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to leave. It's Donald. He's in trouble. Got to get out of this city of night. Find me, oh, find me. My city of light. I'll be back if I can, or I'll call you later, Mother. It's all right, Chris. Do whatever you have to. I understand. Look after my girl, will you, Julian? My pleasure, old chap. I watched Chris's big frame weave hurriedly among the crowded tables and disappear. Almost instantly, I wished I had gone with him. I was aware of the fourth chair at the table, now glaringly empty. Laura and Julian were a twosome. They didn't need me. I looked across the table at them when their faces suddenly blurred. I knew right away what was wrong. It was a migraine attack coming on. I had them three or four times a year, and I knew that after my sight blurred, a violent headache and nausea would follow in swift succession. Nikki, what is it? Oh, Laura, it's happening again. No, Nikki, not now, not here. I- I'd better go. 
It's so bright in here, and, and the noise. What is it? What's wrong? Nikki gets these attacks occasionally. Migraine. They're quite painful. She'll need to take the prescription the doctor gave her. It's it's all right. Now, you, you, you both stay where you are. I'll, I'll take a taxi. Oh, no, Nikki. We'll go with you. Of course. No, Laura. You've been so looking forward to this evening, and it's Julian's last night in town. But I know how sick you get. You can't go home alone. Uh, I'll be all right once I get there. There's nothing for anyone to do. I'll just take my pills and get into bed. If that's all there is to do, I'll see you home. I can get you there faster than a cab, especially in this store. No, really. I insist. Laura can wait here so she won't miss any of the show, and I'll return as soon as I know you're comfortably bedded down. Are you sure you'll be all right alone, Nicky? Of course. Once the medicine takes hold, I'll, I'll sleep. Help her out quickly, Julian. She looks faint. I'll ask the head waiter to look out for you, Laura, and I'll be back in about 30 minutes. Julian got up and took my arm, guiding me gently through the maze of tables. He stopped briefly to speak to the head waiter, collected our coats from the check room, and a moment later we were outside, immersed in a whirling sea of snow. The cold wind lashing against my face was welcome. I was beginning to feel sick to my stomach. We're in for some slow going, I'm afraid. It's bumper to bumper along the strip. I'm all right, Julian. You're being very kind. Just hold on. You'll be home soon. Home and my precious migraine tablets. But through the haze of pain and the rising waves of nausea, I was struck with a sudden frightening thought. T. Oliphant. I would be alone and sick in the apartment. Suppose he returned tonight, pounding on the door. And those awful phone calls with someone breathing, panting on the other end of the line. That could be T. Oliphant, too. I would have to leave the phone off the hook. Chris wouldn't be able to call me. Oh, if only Chris hadn't had to leave me tonight. We're here, Nicole. Now, can you make it all right? What? Oh, oh, yes. Here, let me help you. Slowly, please, my head. Oh, it hurts. I'm feeling quite sick. What a shame having something hit you like this. I'll be better soon, after I've taken my tablet. Yes. Well, I'm going to see you comfortably inside before I leave. I fumbled in my purse for my key, but with my blurred vision, I couldn't fit it into the lock. Julian took the key from me, led us into the lobby, and guided me gently to the door of the apartment. There you go. And here are your keys. Thank you, Julian. I'll be all right now. You get back to Laura, she'll be worried. I want to make sure you're settled first. Let me take that wet coat. You better let me help you off with your boots. No, no, I can manage them. I bent down to pull off my boots and felt myself sinking under a wave of nausea and dizziness. Julian caught me. His strong hands were on my shoulders... And then, suddenly, at my throat. Uh, 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 Julian, what what he... Too bad you became interested in China clippers, Miss Nugent. That was your Aunt Emily's mistake. I don't... I don't understand... Never mind. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters now. Julian 
Ian Brooke was the strangler. His hands were at my throat. I tried to scream. Scream through a windpipe that was being choked off. There was a rushing noise in my ears, and the ugly, distorted face hovering over me began to dissolve. I was falling, falling into a well of blackness. Slowly, I floated back to the surface, hearing before I could see. Sounds of a scuffle, glass breaking, and suddenly, blessedly, I heard Chris's voice. Nikki? Nikki, are you all right? Gradually, light and colors came together, and the scene took shape around me. Julian Brooke was standing in the middle of the living room, flanked by two policemen. There was a trickle of blood at the corner of his mouth, and his hands were manacled. Lieutenant Philippe was there, and Laura, standing off in a corner, motionless as a statue, her face a white blur. The coffee table was overturned, and broken glass littered the floor. Chris was holding me in his arms. It's over, Buffett. It's all over. You'll be all right, mademoiselle. We've called for a doctor. Uh, Don't try to talk now, Nicky. Don't talk. Just rest. Uh, Monsieur Galloway is right, mademoiselle. Do not try to talk now. There will be time. Time. Time to sort out the terrible puzzle whirling round in my brain. Charming, well-bred Julian Brooke had tried to kill me. He had killed my Aunt Emily. Why? What did he mean about China Clippers? How did Chris and the police arrive in time to save me? And poor Laura. How was she going to take all this? Somehow that concerned me more than anything else. It's just so hard to believe that it was Julian all along. There are still so many things I don't understand. Oh, I'm not sure I want to. It's all so dreadful. I just thank God you were saved. Everything is still a, a jumble in my head. I hope Chris gets here soon with Lieutenant Philippe. And then you'll really hear what an utter fool I've been. What do you mean? The money for my restaurant. $50,000. I gave it all to Julian Brooke. Do not worry, Mademoiselle Prescott. Your money is safe and it will be returned to you. Uh, But to begin with, uh, Mademoiselle Nugent... Let us hear the exact words Julian Brooks spoke to you as he was making the attempt on your life. He said, Too bad you became interested in China Clippers, Miss Nugent. That was your Aunt Emily's mistake. Mm -hmm. And you had no idea what he meant by that. I still don't, Lieutenant. Monsieur Galloway will explain. You see, Nicky, Julian Brooks thought that you had the sketch. What sketch? Let me begin at the beginning, darling. Remember the night after Kathleen Wins' murder? You had the flu and I brought in some Chinese food for us? Yes, I remember. Well, you had just read about the murder of the paper and were pretty upset. You went in to take an aspirin. That's when I noticed the sheet music on your coffee table. Just one sheet. And it had Kathleen Windsor's name on it. She'd just come from choir rehearsal and she had an armful of music and books that she put down on the table. Yes. Well, I thought you were upset enough about the murder. You didn't need anything around to remind you of it. So I just stuck the sheet of music in my pocket. I was wearing an old jacket that Saturday that I haven't worn since. So there was nothing to remind me of the music until last night. What happened last night to remind you of it? I saw a sketch Julian had been doodling at the table, a sailing ship done in red ink. I picked it up. He drew one here when he was waiting for you one night, Laura. I thought it was just a hobby. Ah, and his downfall. 
You see, Monsieur Galloway remembered he had seen what he thought was a similar sketch on the back of Kathleen Windsor's piece of sheet music. Which would suggest that Julian Brooke knew her. We had been ferreting about all this time for a man in Kathleen Windsor's life. When Monsieur Galloway informed me of his discovery, I felt certain we'd found him. But, Chris, how did you and the police get here so quickly? How did you even know Julian brought me home? Well, I got to the police station directly from the club. It answered to Donald's call, remember? Oh, yes, Donald. Well, the police had finally gotten Tony Barth on a drug charge, and Tony had tried his bit about implicating Donald. But it's okay now. Tony was exposed for what he is, a liar. Donald's in the clear. As it turned out, Monsieur Galloway and I had other fish to fry. When Lieutenant Philippe confirmed my suspicions, I called the club midnight to warn you about Julian. Laura answered the page and told us Julian had taken you home. I took a taxi from the club. And the police and I got here as soon as we could. And you got here just in time. If we hadn't got caught in traffic. Yeah, well, thank God for icy roads. Brooke tried to make a run for it, of course, headed for your balcony. But the lieutenant here brought him down with a beautiful flying tackle. At the expense of your glass coffee table, I'm afraid. But I still don't understand. Why did Julian Brooke try to kill me? When he saw his sketch was gone from the table at the club, he thought you had taken it, that you must have connected it with the sketch on the back of Kathleen Windsor's music, as he knew your Aunt Emily had. Then that's what he meant when he talked about China clippers and Aunt Emily's mistake. Precisely, mademoiselle. He explained to us that he tried to divert your aunt by calling her attention to the sketches of clipper ships on the wall of the Warwick Tea Room. Uh, but these sketches are in black ink of British clipper ships, while his sketch in red ink was of the Flying Cloud, a very identifiable American clipper ship with an angel blowing a trumpet at its bow. Then he knew Aunt Emily was sure to remember where she'd actually seen it, on Kathleen Windsor's music. And he learned that Kathleen Windsor had come here to you directly from her choir practice the night of her murder. Thus he assumed... You also must have seen the sketch he had drawn on her music. A murderer shouldn't go around leaving his trademark everywhere. Ah, that isn't the only evidence Monsieur Brooke left around. Because he intended to leave the country that night, he had brought his bag to the club midnight. We found its contents uh, most interesting, particularly those beneath its false bottom. What did you find? For one thing, your money, Mademoiselle Prescott. Fortunately, he had not spent it, as he had Kathleen Windsor's. You mean he swindled us both in the same way? With the same story, that he needed the money, temporarily, to open his new furniture plant. Uh, but not quite in the same way. With you, Mademoiselle Prescott, his approach had to be more subtle. Thus, he staged the attack on you in the park, so that he might become your rescuer. But how did he even know I had $50,000? Hmm. From your unwise advertising in the paper, mademoiselle, he, he first called you an answer to your ad for a restaurant property, do you recall? Yes, I certainly do. I thought it was a practical joker. But the voice, it wasn't Julian's. I'm afraid it was, mademoiselle. Monsieur Brooke is a master of disguises. Another item we found in his bag was a false mustache and a Van Dyke beard. Then the man Aunt Emily saw in the car with Kathleen Windsor was Julian Brooke. Yes, the same man, different name. Kathleen Windsor knew him as Stephen Harcourt, while Elsie Grunberger had met him under his real name, Charles Potter. 
Julian murdered Elsie Grunberger, too? I mean, Charles Potter? Yes, yes. It, it was the first time he killed. He had to do it to protect his investment in the Windsor woman. Elsie Grunberger had been a friend of the rich widow Potter had fleeced out of her savings. Unfortunately for Elsie, she caught sight of him with Kathleen Windsor one day, and he knew she recognized him, despite his disguise. He followed her home and killed her. Well, then the arrest of Julian Brooke, uh, Charles Potter, solves three of your murders. What about the fourth, the most recent one? That, regrettably, is, is still on our books. Charles Potter denies having had anything to do with it. It is a month now since that fateful Saturday when the mask was ripped off Julian Brooke and the face of the foe revealed. Laura has found a location for her restaurant and is hard at work trying to forget all that happened. Meanwhile, I've learned not to judge people by the faces they wear. T. Oliphant may be something of a woman hater, but it turns out that all those brown cartons of his contain toys that he makes and delivers regularly to St. Simon's Parish House as gifts for needy children. Donald Hamill has been placed in a good home where he continues to carry on his love affair with his guitar when he's not vrooming around on Aunt Emily's red motorcycle. The snow lies deep now on the graves of Aunt Emily, Kathleen Windsor, and Elsie Grunberger. But of course, Lieutenant Philippe continues to caution us to lock our doors, reminding us that there is still a murderer loose in Montreal. Asphalt and concrete beyond and steel Nowhere, nowhere, anything real Bolted doors on the houses Shutter doors on the hearts Broken dreams in the concrete That concludes this week's production of The Zero Hour, Patricia Power's Face of the Foe. Next week, we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days, at the same time, Monday through Friday. So, on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serving is your host. Patricia Powers' Face of the Foe was adapted for radio by Shirley Gordon. Jessica Walter was Nicole. Joseph Campanella was Chris. And Judy Carmen was Laura. Featured in the cast were Shep Menken as Philippe and Richard Dawson as Julian. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer, Rochelle Sherman, associate producer, and Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in Monday and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... To The Zero Hour...